Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whom spirit, whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of the great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we we have come before you already, but we just want to ask again as we open your word that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. In this moment, we want to confess our sins and ask forgiveness and ask that you would allow us to hear you, that there would be no distractions, but that we would listen and that we would obey and put into practice the things that we see in your word. And I pray this for each of us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, buddy. Mom. No, I'm not mom. Dad. <laughs> Dad. So this morning, I, I never do things like this, but I want to just do something a little out of, out of the ordinary as I approach a text that is amazing. And I thought, this is probably the best way that I could open it up. So, hey, buddy. Hey, Bubba. How would you, do, do you mind, what if I threw you way up high? Yeah? Okay, are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, here's the thing that I, that I want to get across. And actually, are, are you ready to go back to Miss Karen? Yeah, that's what you said last time, too. Yeah. Here's what I want us to think about. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15 in just a minute. And uh, I always like to encourage you to turn there. We've got Bibles all over the room here. You can grab one from the seat in front of you. Luke's a a pretty easy book to find. It's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. If you use the, the thumb method, just look for Luke. Find Luke chapter 15. We've sang a couple songs about the goodness of God, his mercy is more, what father so tender is calling us home, and Jesus in this text presents God as a joyful father. And so at the beginning of this message, I wanted to invite Jack into this service 
for just a second. And many of you who are parents, and even if you're not parents, will understand the joy that exists between a father and a son. And I don't know if you noticed, Jack, when we're at home, is not a very nervous person. He's a little out of his element here, and so he was kind of like, what are all you people looking at? Why are you here? But as I interact with him, I think I smiled actually more than he did. One of the huge delights that I have as a father is just the delight that we share going back and forth, discovering all the good, crazy things that God has built into the life. Like, for example, dizziness. As a little kid, you know, if you're in the doctor's office, one of the things that you love to do, if they have a little rotating stool, you sit on the stool and you spin, right? Until maybe you fall off the stool. It's super fun. But somewhere along the way, as I grew up, I don't know why, but I quit doing that for a long time until I had kids. And then it was a joy to take them and spin them around and then to set them down and watch them try to walk. And they delight in it, and I delight in it, and we love the relationship that we have with each other. And so I wanted to begin this message by saying, just in a small way, the human joy that we have in our kids is how God describes the joy that God has in his family. Now, I'm not perfect, and my family's not. But our Heavenly Father is perfect. And as God says, that's the joy that he has in his family, we get a little taste of it, just a slight hint of it in the joy that we can have in our families. And now here's where I want to go next. Keep that image of joy in your mind. If you can picture Jack's happy, smiling face while I throw him up in the air recklessly, think of that, but put it on hold for a second. Now... Think of some of the stories that maybe you've heard before of Moses going to Mount Sinai and how Exodus describes the glory of God descending on the mountain in smoke and thunder that peeled and shook the earth and the people who were so afraid that they did not want to approach God. And think for a moment that that is also God, equally 100% completely. There's an image of a joyful father who welcomes his home. There's the image of an awesome and a holy God who's unapproachable, who says, don't touch the mountain or you die. And how do we reconcile those two things? You see, the way that you and I think of God will determine everything about us. If you believe that God is unapproachable and holy, you will tend to live your life in fear of him. You will never be comfortable. You'll never experience his love. And if you tend to believe that God is the father that always forgives and you forget about the holiness of God, you'll tend to minimize obedience. You will not be a good, obedient child. So the question that I want to address and answer this morning is how do the two of those things come together? How have people gotten them wrong? And how, by the grace of God, can we get it 
right. And it begins in Luke chapter 15. Now, we've already seen the first two parables in this. I preached on them last week. If you missed that message, you can go online and hear it. Jesus has described God's joy in welcoming repentant sinners back into his family. But the chapter begins not with the joy of the Father, but with the grumpiness of the Pharisees and the scribes. So look for just a moment at the first two verses of chapter 15. It says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they grumbled about this, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And they were right. Jesus does not deny the charge. What he does is he admits it and said, God is a God who goes after sinners. God is a God who seeks those who are lost. And he tells two little parables that show the heart of the Father. And Luke shows us that Jesus is doing the Father's will. He says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So you see Jesus as the perfect representation of God the Father. God the Father loves to save sinners. Jesus loves to save sinners. But he tells a third parable that describes the reality of a wasted life in two different ways. And it's in this third parable that I think we see these two divergent ideas about who God is. And I think Jesus helps us understand perfectly how we ought to come to God and how we ought to embrace him and enjoy the presence of the Father. And so I've got a couple little points the way I divided the text up this morning. And the first one is a wasted life. A wasted life. And I want to invite you to see a wasted life with me in verses 11 through 16. And I want to encourage you to read along with me. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You see a wasted life in two different senses. Dave, I mentioned already, gave me that little book that I want to share with you that I hope to take with you today. And in reading that, I read a fantastic truth, and I read it long enough ago, I completely forgot about it. So I was studying this week, and as I was studying, I read this, this verse that says, his father divided his property between them. Now, the, the word for property in Greek is actually not property. It's the word bios. You might recognize bios from biography. 
So there are two words for life in Greek. One is the life that is eternal, the life that comes from God, that every living thing has a little piece of. But bios is an individual life. That's why we use it for the term biography when you tell your life story. And when it says that he divided his property between him, his life was bound up in the property that he owned. This was not as simple as taking cash out of a bank account and handing it over. See, their family would have been tied to property and land that had been in the family for generations after generations. If you read the Old Testament, Jews hand down their property faithfully and keep it in the family to such an extent that if it's ever sold within a certain number of years, it has to go back to the original family because the land belonged to God and God had given it to families. So when it describes This man is dividing his property. It's more than just cash. It's the life that he had inherited from his father and his father's father for generations, for hundreds of years. And so he's willing to divide his very existence, his very life, and give a piece of it to his younger son. If you've heard this story before, you know this request was deeply insulting. You know this is a son saying, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff, not you. And the insane reality is that the father agrees to this son's deeply insulting request. And so he gives him what he asks for. In one sense, the father is wasting his life by giving it to a son who has no interest in being part of the family. And so the son takes what the father gives him and then squanders it. It says in reckless living. Later on in the story, many of you know it, the older brother is angry at what's happened, and he describes how this son of yours came and devoured your property, your life, with prostitutes. We don't know if he was exaggerating because he was angry, but very likely, that's probably pretty accurate. Jesus is telling this story. He's not going to put words in the older brother's mouth that aren't really fair. And probably he lived a very sinful life in many ways. Wanting to go to a far country meant he wanted nothing to do with being part of the people of God. It meant he would never want to worship God at temple. It meant that he did not care about his family, his people, or his God. And so it's not surprising that he takes what he has and he spends it in all kinds of ways that are obviously sinful. As Jesus tells this story, he's talking to people that are complaining that he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and he never denies that the people he's spending time with truly are sinners. They are breaking God's laws. Maybe they're breaking them by stealing. Maybe they're breaking them sexually. Maybe they're breaking them by being dishonest. It doesn't really matter. If you break the law, you're a lawbreaker and a sinner. And so Jesus is honest about the state of this young man, that he is squandering his father's life, and that that leaves him empty, starving, in a humiliating place that no young Jewish man would ever want to be in. So he wastes his life. So we think about this story, some of us have pasts that we're not proud of, Some of you may feel like you have wasted your life, that you know that you have broken God's laws. 
And you can testify firsthand to how empty that leaves you. The things that you thought would make you happy did not make you happy. The fantastic party that everyone was at had a horrible hangover the next morning. And so you recognize that the things you thought would make you happy don't. That's what this young man realized. And he realized that apart from the father, there was absolutely no hope and there was no life. And so he goes from a wasted life to a weary repentance. Look at verses 17 to 19 with me and see where he goes from this recognition. He says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. From his emptiness, he recognizes how deeply wrong he was. When he says, I've sinned against heaven and before you, he is 100% right. Sinning against heaven means you have ignored what God said was right and deliberately done what was wrong. And you weren't forced into it or tricked into it, but you did it because you wanted to do it. And when he comes to his father, he has this speech all rehearsed. And honestly, it's a good speech to a point. He says two things that are right on. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He acknowledges his sin. That's what true repentance always does. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That second statement sounds harsh, but it's absolutely true. Think just for a second. It's true on a human level. How many of you voted to be part of your families? Anybody? I'm not going to ask if you would have voted if you could have. (laughs) We're not brought into this world by our own choice. And God the Father welcomes children into his family on the basis of pure grace. He doesn't look around at people that look like they have their act together and say, all right, you can be my son, you can be my daughter. It's pure grace that allows us to be part of God's family. So he's completely right. He's not worthy to be called his father's son. And neither am I and neither are you. And that recognition is absolutely key. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are separated from the Father in one way or another. And he recognizes that his sin is a horrible affront to Almighty God, and it's a horrible affront. It's a deep insult to his Father, and so he recognizes that he does not deserve to be part of the family. But then he adds this. He says, Treat me as one of your hired servants. And that's where he goes a little bit wrong. He believes that because of his sin, his father will not welcome him back as a son. And he has some hope that his father will let him return home, but he believes that it'll never be the same. He won't have the rights of being a member of the family. The best he can hope for are just leftovers. Whatever the father chooses to pay out to hired hands, whatever work he doesn't want his children to do, he'll hire other people to do. So he's expecting to be a sort of second-class citizen 
within his father's household. So he goes with this plan for a weary kind of repentance, and he finds an amazingly joyful reunion. Look with me at verses 20 through 24. It says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see what happened there? The father's reaction is incredible. And this is what God says that he is like. Jesus didn't make this up. He's not misrepresenting the Father. He's the perfect representation of the Father. And Jesus is saying, when you and I come to God and we admit our sin, we acknowledge that we're not worthy to be part of his family, this is God's reaction. He said it twice before, that there is joy in heaven over a single sinner who repents. And now he's describing what that joy is like. This is the reaction the father has every time a sinner repents. He, he sees him from a distance and feels compassion for him. He's not happy that his son is in the place of starving and disgrace and rags. He's deeply grieved, not just because of his own feelings, but also for the pain that his son is experiencing. He felt compassion for him. And so he runs and embraces him. And many of you have heard it's absolutely true. In this culture, a father would never run. And that might sound weird until you realize how they were dressed. So men wore long robes. It was a symbol of authority. It was a symbol of wealth, which meant that they could not run easily unless they grabbed the bottom of the robe and hitched it right up to their hips And it would have been humiliating to try to run like that. And this father didn't care. He had compassion on his son. He loved him. So he hitched up his robes and ran to greet him. Not only does he have compassion, not only does he run and embrace him, he kisses him. He loves him. This is before he's cleaned up. The man has not had a shower. He's been feeding pigs. And the father hugs him and embraces him and kisses him and is full of joy. That joy is so critical because it's deeper than the love that a dad has for a son. It's deeper than the love that I have for Jack. I'm not a perfect father, but God is. He rejoices at the way his sinning child comes home recognizing the emptiness of his sin. And he embraces him and loves him. And not only does he do that, he clothes him. He gets the robe, he gets the best robe. 
And he gives him a ring and he gives him sandals. And these are the same symbols of authority that men in a house would share. So there's no possibility that the father is going to take him on as a hired hand. He never even gets to say that part of his speech. The father says, you are my son. And he clothes him like a son. And he welcomes him back in. And this is what God does for each of us. It's more than just a story. You read through the rest of the New Testament, you find out when we come to Jesus, the Bible says that our righteousness, the best things that we do. So think for a second about church people that you would admire. Maybe your Sunday school teacher growing up, maybe a VBS lady, maybe a man with integrity that you've looked up to. The Bible says that our best is like filthy rags to God because all of us are broken sinners. And when we come to God with our filthy rags, the Bible teaches that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's as if we're taking an old wardrobe off and putting on a new wardrobe. The dirt that used to define us is taken away and we are covered with the goodness of of Jesus Christ. That's what happens when we repent. The Father welcomes us and clothes us in his righteousness. And he does that for anyone and everyone who comes to him. God is a good father. He's not going to treat his son like a second-class citizen because of what he did. He's not going to manipulate him with his past failures. That's what the older brother does. So you see this wasted life where the son really did go off and do terrible things, damaged his father's reputation, took part of his father's life. You see the weary kind of repentance where he recognizes the emptiness of that kind of lifestyle. And you see this joyful reunion where he comes home and the father welcomes him and embraces him. But that's not the end of the story. There's a second wasted life in the story. And that's what you see with the older brother here. Read with me verses 25 through 32. It says, Now his older son was in a field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. As you look at the older brother, he is a mirror image of the people that Jesus is talking to. You remember the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're grumbling. 
because Jesus is welcoming repentant sinners into the family of God. And they feel like those people have no place in the family of God. And Jesus is showing what their hearts are really like in this young man. And the irony is, part of the reason that he's so angry is even though he stayed home with the father, in reality, he was very much like his younger brother. He wanted all of the same things that the younger brother wrongfully enjoyed. And you're saying, how do you know that? How, wh- where's the evidence for that? Notice a couple of things that he says very specifically. Number one, he's angry that the father is using his own wealth to welcome this young man back in, which is a sign that he just wants the wealth of the father just like the younger son does. Number two, when he complains, he says, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. In other words, He doesn't want to celebrate with the father. He wants to throw parties for his friends that his father is not invited to. He doesn't love the father either. And I believe that there are many of us that experience the exact same sort of attitude. Some of you have never lived as younger brothers. You've been good church people. You've come to Sunday school. You were raised in the church. You can say, I've never done anything bad. In fact, I've heard people say things to me like, I've never taken a drop of alcohol in my life, as if that makes you special before God. It doesn't. He's bitter because deep down, he wanted to enjoy all of the things that his brother enjoyed. And we don't know, this is just a story. We don't know why he didn't, but I think for us, there are two possibilities, probably more, but but at least two. Some of us who stay within church never had the guts to do what we wanted to do. We wanted the approval of other people, and so we put on a show. We acted like we were good, but deep down inside, we wanted all the same thing. You say, how do you know that? Well, partly because pornography is such a problem within the church. You might never go out and hire a prostitute literally, but you'll hire a prostitute through your computer or your phone. And if that's true, that means you long to live like a younger brother, even if you stayed in church your whole life. You're not that different. You just look a little better and smell a little nicer. The other possibility, and this is also true... Some people really are convinced of their own righteousness. They might not have secret sins, but they're very proud of the fact that they haven't sinned in the ways other people sin. And they believe that God owes them something for it. And you know this happens when tragedy strikes and someone becomes angry or bitter at God. When something awful happens... And you say, God, how could you let this happen to me? Why would you let this happen to me? The the answer to that question is that God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. It's only the mercy and grace of God that allow us to enjoy his good gifts. And if you're an older brother type person you will keep God at a distance 
while you attend church and be separated from the love and the joy of the Father your whole life, this man has no clue what his Father is truly like. The question is, what will you and I do with that? I believe this parable describes everyone here in one way or another. And as Jesus told this story to grumpy, grumbling Pharisees, he was telling it to them because like the Father, he wanted to welcome them in. One of the stunning things about Jesus is he put up with obnoxious church people for his entire ministry. He never stopped having dinner with Pharisees who wanted to kill him. Some of them repented and found salvation. You know this because you know Nicodemus from from the Gospel of John. He's a Pharisee. When he first meets Jesus, he's not sure that he believes him. But he meets Jesus a few times throughout the Gospel. And by the time the Gospel is in, Nicodemus is a believer. He trusts in Jesus Christ. A few of the Pharisees, a few older brother people, wake up and realize... Our righteousness is filthy rags, and we need the grace of the Father just as much as the younger brother does. There's no such thing as a two-tier system. It's not as if God loves older brothers more and younger brothers less. All of us need this grace. And so the question that I have for you today is, where are you? You might be an older brother kind of type. You might be pretty good at following rules, but you have no concept of the love of God. And, and the reason I started this message with these two mountains, Mount Sinai, where God is holy and awesome, is I believe that the Pharisees understood that real well. They understood a holy and an awesome God, and they kept him at a safe distance by following the rules, making the right kinds of sacrifices, but they didn't love him or trust him. They didn't recognize the grace that he extended. It's not as if God is any different. You heard Janine read from Psalm 32. That's a psalm written in the Old Testament celebrating the forgiveness that the God of the Old Testament offered anyone who would repent. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. That grace has always been available. And the Pharisees should have known it. But they treat God as if he is an angry, distant God and they believe that they've got his favor, they're afraid of sinners because they don't want to get struck by lightning when someone else does. So they just don't know the love of God. And maybe that's you today. I believe a lot of Christians, myself included, walk through life trying to keep God happy. And if you mess up, you pray and you hope you feel guilty enough while you're confessing your sin that God will forgive you and you can go back to some sort of normal relationship. That's not what God is like. Don't make confession some sort of ritual to please God. Your father loves you. Your father proved his love for you when he sent his son to die in your place. There's one thing that the older son kind of gets right. And it's a question that we have to answer if you recognize the truth that God is a holy and awesome God. It's not that Exodus and Mount Sinai is untrue. And I'll remind you, I don't remember if I said this earlier, Jesus has the same glory. He's got the same holiness. And it's not as if that's untrue in Jesus or in the Father. 
So when the father welcomes this young sinner in, how can he do it? Well, for you and I, it's because there's a third mountain. There's not just Mount Sinai and the Mount of Transfiguration where you see the glory of Jesus. There's Mount Calvary where the Son of God took your sin and my sin and he was crucified for our transgressions, for every sin that we committed, whether you are an older brother and a self-righteous Pharisee or whether you're a younger brother and you've got a rap sheet longer than your arm. Jesus died for you on Mount Calvary so that the Father could welcome you and I into his family with the full rights of his children. The cost of forgiveness is enormously high, and God has paid it for you. If you're here today, and you're struggling with secret sin, and you're full of anxiety, I believe what this message says to you is God loves you. It does not matter what you've done. God loves you. He paid the price for your sin when he sent his son to die for you. And if you're here today and you are full of self-righteousness, be humbled. Recognize that Jesus says to you boldly and directedly, your righteousness is a steaming pile of garbage before God. And if you are proud of who you are as a person and you look down at the people around us, You look down on people who are in poverty, who don't have nice clothes, who struggle with addiction, whose marriages are a mess, and you feel like, thank God I'm not like that sinner. Jesus is warning you, you are in grave danger of being left out of the feast. So recognize that you need grace too, and be humbled. See the joy of the Father here in this message, and repent. Repent that you were wrong about who God is. Acknowledge that you should love God. You should not live in fear of Him. If you're the kind of person that that feels like God is always angry with you, you're missing the whole point of this parable. And what I would recommend is that if the Holy Spirit is talking to you right now and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is me. That, that, that I don't feel the love of God. I don't feel the joy of being part of his family. I would recommend a couple of things. Number one, stare at this parable. Glue your eyeballs to it, at least for a solid week, but maybe longer. Look at what Jesus is saying. Jesus is never wrong, and he does not lie. This is who your father is. Meditate on it. Saturate your mind with it. And as you read what Jesus says about the Father, confess your sin that you have got God wrong. That is a sin. The first commandment is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. If you're not doing that, you're sinning. And part of the problem is if you have got God wrong you have actually been thinking of him in an idolatrous way. That's sin. Call it what it is. Confess it to God. And recognize, not only does God offer forgiveness, he offers help. So as you confess your sin and say, God, I've got you wrong. Please forgive me. Ask for help. The Bible says we love God because he first loved us. So ask that you would experience and feel the love of God so that you can obediently love him as you should. And I want to invite you to do that now.
I don't really care what your pedigree is like. I don't care if you're the kind of person that you're a good church person. I don't care what sins that that you've committed that you're not proud of. I want to invite you right now in this moment to repent and feel and experience the grace of God. And so I'd encourage you to pray with me, and I want to give you space to talk to God. Talk to God about this passage of Scripture. Figure out where you're at in it. And I want to invite you to experience the love of God in a way that maybe you never have before. And in just a moment, I'll close and we can all pray together. Maybe like the younger son, you need to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I want to invite you to do that right now and to experience the forgiveness that comes from the Father. If that's you, I also want to say, if if you've never been baptized before, being baptized is the way that you recognize Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And I would love to invite you to be baptized. You can talk to me today. I would encourage you to do that before you leave this morning. Father, I pray that you wouldn't ever let us forget this message from Jesus. I ask that that you would not allow Satan to steal it from us. I, I pray that you would not allow us to be distracted. May we never forget your love. Lord, I pray that your love would flow out from us and into other people, that that we would never be judgmental towards other people, that we would remember we need your grace and we would offer that grace freely just like Jesus did. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we close, I'd like to do something uh, just a little bit different. So many things are different today anyway. What I'd like to do is lead you in singing Amazing Grace. So I want to invite you to sing with me a song that captures the love of God for us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears Relief, how precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have 
prepare to leave this morning, I want to invite you to talk to me after the service. If you need assurance to know that you're forgiven, if you need to be baptized, I'd urge you don't leave until you've talked to me about it today. And I want to leave you with a couple of verses that talk about how God keeps his children safe until we see him home. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.